Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. In our exposition of Hebrews, we've come here to this passage. I want to read for you to set the context here, the first 13 verses of our text here this morning. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then our text this morning picks up verse 3. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray. Father, we come at this moment to Your Holy Word that You have given us to reveal Yourself to us, to teach us of how it is we ought to interpret life, to show us of Jesus, our glorious Savior, and to show of His sufferings and to place in us expectations about what we ought to expect in terms of our sufferings. So I pray, Lord, by Your grace at this moment to, to stir our hearts afresh, to be in tune with Your Word, to hear it, to know it, to rejoice in it. And Father, would pray that You would use me to exalt Jesus this morning. whose name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a, a woman named Heather Dornadin, who's now Heather Kampf, because she has been married since then. But she's a middle distance runner for the University of Minnesota. And uh, now she runs for Team USA. But uh, in high school, she was a very decorated runner, uh, winning the 400 meters and the 800 meters in high school. The state of Minnesota, not an an easy task. But her success continued in Minnesota, where she was a nine-time All-American runner at the University of Minnesota. Two years ago, 2008, she's competing in the Big 
Ten Indoor Championships. I guess that's three years ago now. Uh, the Big Ten Indoor Championships. He's running the 600 meters. And an indoor track, it's um, 200 meters around. So it's three times around the track. An uh, indoor track tends to be smaller. Four runners in the race. One from Penn State, one from Indiana, and two from Minnesota. And uh, the gun went off. The runners all got off to a fair start. And, and one lap around the race, uh, Heather Dornadin was in second place, right on the heels of the Penn State runner, just kind of letting her set the pace. Heather was waiting to make her move. By the time the second lap came around, she was in first place. But right then, right as the, the lap was turning, she tripped and fell. Um, in fact, you can even see this on YouTube. It's an amazing thing. She tripped and she fell. And um, later when asked about that fall, she said, I had a little bit of disbelief, but I, I knew it was a tight spot in the meet already. Then we need as many points as we could, even if I couldn't, that, couldn't win that race. So she got up and began running again. Uh, by the time she got up, the runner, she was about 20 meters behind with 200 meters to go one lap around the track. And, but she just started running uh, with all her might. She's on along the back stretch and she's gaining on the pack. And uh, then she said, in the interview later, said about 100 to go, I heard the commentator, the announcer say, and the announcer was, they're announcing for everybody, you know, kind of like a horse race, like the Kentucky Derby, everyone's announcing and and uh, she heard while she's running, the announcer saying, here comes Heather Dornadin. And she said, I got pretty excited and I think that helped out quite a bit and I just gave it all I had. Well, all I had was enough to win the race. Having fallen down, she won the race, won by four hundredths of a second over her, her teammate. Um, one minute, 31 seconds, 72 one hundredths. Became the Big Ten champion, the 600 meters. Why? She didn't lose heart. Rather, she fell down, she got up, she pressed on for the race. So we come to our, this morning to our text. This is our main point this morning. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. In fact, that's the title of my message this morning. Don't lose heart. You can see it right there at the end of verse 3. These things are written so that... Here's the purpose. I mean, here's the, here's the thing that holds all this text together... The reason why this is written is so that we are not, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Aristotle used these words to describe the, what happens with a runner right after they cross the finish line, exhausted. They'll fall over, they'll grow weary and lose heart and, and fall limp on the ground. Just <sighs> but they finished the race. And the call here, the writer of the book of Hebrews, pulling the same imagery, but he says, don't fall before the line. Wait till you've accomplished the race. Run with endurance the race that's set before us before you grow weary and lose heart, before you fall down, because you're not done yet. There's more race to run, so don't collapse. If you've fallen down like Heather Dornadin, then get back up and get in the race because you need to finish the race that is set before us. That's why this paragraph is in the Scriptures. It's in the Bible here. It's here to help us finish it teaches us ways that we can keep our heart. And it teaches us ways how it is that we cannot lose heart and give up. Now, for the original readers, it's easy to see why he would write such a word here at this point. Because they, quite frankly, were tempted to give up in their race. Back in chapter 10, you can look back there, chapter 10, uh, verse 32, it says that when they first came to faith, it says, remember the former days. 
when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. That is, they came to see Jesus the Messiah, came into the church, and what did they, they endure? They endured a great conflict of sufferings. We don't know exactly what they were, but some detail is described for us here in verses 32 and following. It says, you, partly, verse 33, partly is what happened, you were made a public spectacle. Ridicule in the public forum. How that is? A whole city? Ridiculing the Christians? Maybe if they had newspapers in that day. Yeah, it would have been written in the newspapers, radio about these Christians who are so bad. Publicly ridiculed. Publicly made a spectacle. Partly that. Partly, says through reproaches and tribulations. I, I sense that this is a, a bit more, more quiet. Maybe by your family, maybe by your friends, reproaching people for following this Jesus, this dead Messiah. Why are you following Him and being made fun of? Others, verse 34, were imprisoned. And we know that because these people showed sympathy for the prisoners. These are Christian prisoners who are imprisoned for their Christian faith. Others had their properties confiscated. Verse 34, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better one. They had their faith, their property taken away because they're believers in Jesus. Such things, I think, are obviously discouragements to our faith. I mean, public ridicule, great presence of all is a great reason or cause why to lose heart and to give up. Cause you to really think about these people saying, is it really worth it? Should I, should I still follow Jesus? Or is it not worth it? Well, in chapter 11, it's not without reason that the author mentioned how, in verse 35, you can see it there, others were tortured. These were great men of faith. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. He said, hey, listen, the, the, the people of faith have been tortured. They have, have, have experienced mockings before. They've experienced scourgings before. They've experienced chains. They've experienced imprisonment. He mentioned how the great people of faith were stoned. That is, stoned to death with rocks being hit on the head. They were sawn into a torturous death. Tempted. Put to death with a sword. They weren't living well. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. They had no place to call their home. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And such was the way that the original hearers were facing. They were faking mocking, facing mockings and scourgings, perhaps tortures, perhaps threats of martyrdom. Particularly in the early first century, many Christians lost their lives for following the Messiah. It's all because of their faith in Christ. And we can easily see how they might, might feel like, like giving up, like, like losing heart. And the message here, however, is don't lose heart. Rather, press on and endure until the end. Right? In fact, this endurance is the key word of this section. If you look at chapter 10, verse 36, he says, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The call here is to continue running. That's what we've said, right? Jesus is better, so press on, right? Keep going. Don't faint before the, 
the finish line. And there is application for us as well where we may not be facing public ridicule or imprisonment or scourgings, but we might face some mocking, might face some persecution from our family, might face some uh, ridicule. But today you might be tempted to lose heart. And there's some discouraging things about us. Lack of a job might be hard. Situations at work might be hard. Your marriage might be hard. Your children might be giving you a heartache. That might be hard. Other things that I know nothing about. Struggles with aging parents. Struggles with neighbors. Struggles with temptations in the home. I, I don't know, but, but you might be tempted to, to give up. You might be losing heart following Christ. And I say, this text is for you. Don't lose heart. Don't give up because Jesus is better, so press on. You have, I say, come back. Come back. Be renewed again, refreshed again this morning. And maybe today might be preventative medicine for you, preparing you for the day when you feel like, oh, I'm not sure I can go on. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. My exhortation to you, the exhortation of the text, is similar to what Winston Churchill spoke. On October 29, 1941, he came back to his old school, Harrow School, a prestigious English boarding school for boys. He was addressing the boys of the school in the heat of World War II. After the German Blitz, about a month before the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, he had been there about ten months before, and now he's coming back and he's reflecting upon what had transpired in that ten months when he was there last time and he was here today. Five-minute speech, which also you can listen to on YouTube. It's a famous enough speech, a powerful enough speech that it was recorded in 1941. Still have it today. He told of how the fortunes of Great Britain were changing for the better. Some of what he said is this. He said, The ten months have passed. They have seen very terrible, catastrophic events in the world. Ups and downs, misfortunes. But can anyone sitting here this afternoon, this October afternoon, not feel deeply thankful for what has happened in the time that has passed and for the very great improvement in the position of our country and of our home? Why, when I was here last time, we were quite alone, desperately alone, and we had been so for five or six months. We were poorly armed and we had the unmeasured menace of the enemy and their air attacks still beating down upon us. And then, he said those famous words, he said, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. Except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago. And to many countries it might seem that our account was closed. We were finished. But very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn up the sponge across her slate. But instead, our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching and no thought of giving in. But what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say, we can be sure that we only have to persevere to conquer. 
what a great word for us this morning, right? We only need to persevere to conquer. In some regard, that is the message of our text this morning. Never give in. Never give in. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't ever, 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 ever lose heart. Even when all looks bleak. Don't ever lose heart. All you need is endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. That's the message of the writer of the book of Hebrews here. He's just telling us, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Press on. Well, he gives us two ways to help us how it is that we cannot lose heart. Because this isn't a matter of just saying, okay, I'm just going to grin and bear it. I'm just going to be really strong. I'm just not going to lose heart. No, we're more fragile than that. We need some help. How it is we might not lose heart. And he gives us two pieces of advice, two ways for us not to lose heart. The first comes in verse 3 alone. We need to consider His sufferings. That is, consider the sufferings of Jesus. Look there in verse 3 what it says. It says, For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We are to think much upon the sufferings of Jesus. The word consider there is a, it's a strong word. Just, just think upon, meditate upon, examine, go over in your mind, contemplate the sufferings of Jesus. And in so doing, that will give you the strength so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in our own sufferings. Rather, we'll be strengthened to endure. God has just ordained, this is the means, to help us in our sufferings, we need to look at the sufferings of Jesus. Consider His sufferings. Well, how did Jesus suffer? I just want us to spend a moment considering His sufferings. After His baptism, He was immediately impelled by the Spirit to go out in the wilderness. And you know what happened there? Fasted for 40 days. Tempted by Satan himself. Tempted in the the very things, very places where he was weak. Make the stone bread. Show yourself to be the Messiah. Jump off the temple. He'll rescue you. Bow to me and I'll give you all this kingdom. The moment of weakness, the strongest of tempters came to tempt him in his very point of vulnerability. That's hostility, church family. The beginning of his public ministry, flat off, accused of blasphemy. Who can forgive sins? Hostility. The Pharisees question about his practices. Why do you eat with sinners? Why don't you fast? Why are you picking grain on the Sabbath? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? And they weren't genuine questions. And we're like, huh, we thought we needed to fast. Why are you guys fasting? Why aren't you fasting? Or, can you really pick grain on the Sabbath? I thought you couldn't. These weren't genuine questions. These were questions of accusation. They were hostile questions. Their questions sought to take Jesus down. And when Jesus answered all their questions, it says in Mark 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. Sets up hostility for the rest of His ministry. Jesus never knew a peaceful ministry. He knew only a ministry of hostility. And those attacks came upon Him again and again and again in His ministry. They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. The, the country of the Gerasenes where He 
healed the, the Gerasene demoniac, implored him to leave. He did a good thing for them. He did good, and they returned evil for good. They didn't want anything to do with him. His hometown of Nazareth rejected him also. After he'd preached there for the first time after his public ministry took place, they hated what he said. They took him out to the brow of the hill. They tried to throw him down so as to injure him so then they could stone him with rocks. That's how they did it. But he escaped from their midst. His hometown was hostile against him. They questioned him regarding the tradition of the elders. They tested him, demanding a sign from him. When entering Jerusalem, they immediately challenged his authority. Then they brought the Herodians to him to try to test him and trap him in a statement. They brought the Sadducees to trap him in his words. When it came time for the Passover, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. Eventually, they were able to bribe Judas, a close friend, to betray him. And Judas led the mob with swords and clubs to the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, they laid their hands on Jesus under the cover of darkness. That's hostility. The trial was filled with hostility where many were giving false testimony against Him. Eventually, they induced Jesus to confess that indeed He was the Messiah. The high priest interpreted as blasphemy. Then began the physical sufferings of Jesus up until this point. Most of His sufferings were just back and forth words and banter and hostility and anger and venom. But now comes the physical sufferings of Christ. They spit at Jesus. They blindfolded Him. Began to beat Him with their fists. Bring Jesus before Pilate who tries to release Him. But because of political pressure which was just too great, Pilate ordered Him to be scourged, handed over to be crucified. The Roman soldiers painted Him in purple placed a crown of thorns upon his head, mocked him as a king and were beating his head with the reed and spitting upon him. They led him out to be crucified, which means that he was nailed to a cross. He placed a, a crown, sorry, lifted high for all to see and they just watched and waited for him to die. Spread out naked for the world to see. But, but even then, the hostility didn't stop. While hanging helpless upon the cross, abuse, came towards Him. Those passing by were wagging their heads saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and restore it again in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross! And the chief priests and the scribes were mocking Him saying, He saved others. He can't save Himself. If He is the Christ, let the Christ, the King of Israel, let Him come down from the cross then we'll believe in Him. It's a flat out lie. They're not going to believe in Him. The two robbers crucified with them were insulting Him as well. It was only later that the one asked for forgiveness. That was a hostility that Jesus endured by sinners against Himself. Verse 3. And we need to think of Him. And I think this, this, this includes not only thinking of the sufferings, but thinking of Him and how He endured the, the hostility and the suffering. So how did Jesus endure it? Well, when suffering, He uttered no threats. When reviling, he did not revile in return. Rather, what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In so doing, Jesus, suffering at the hand of sinful men, became an example for us to follow in his steps. Just entrust our souls to God who judges righteously. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. A slave is not greater than a master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do 
for my name's sake, because I do not know the one who sent me. Jesus told his disciples, listen, they hated me. You saw the hostility to me. And when it comes back to you, realize that I'm the master and you're the servant. And the servant isn't greater than the master. If they treated me that way, this way, they'll also treat you that way. Think about that. Consider his sufferings. When you're persecuted for your faith, know that Jesus was persecuted first. When you're insulted, know that Jesus was insulted first. When you're ridiculed, know that Jesus was ridiculed first. When your property is taken away from you, realize that Jesus was stripped of His garments only to have it be taken by the Roman soldiers divided up among them. When you're beaten for your faith, when you're thrown in prison for your faith, when you're killed for your faith, realize that Jesus bore all these sorrows first. And considering His sufferings will strengthen us to not grow weary and lose heart through all these things. Consider them long and hard. The promise of the text is that in considering them, that will be the strength by which we will not grow weary and lose heart. Because when you see how Jesus suffered, it will strengthen you for suffering. It works like this. John Huss, the Czech reformer, was accused of heresy, tied the stake, the chain for his being burned. He's right there at the moment of his death. And John Huss, we believe everything, not everything, the vast majority in the essentials of everything John Huss believed, we believe. All right? This was early on in the Reformation, pre Reformation, I even think. He looked at the chain, told his executioners, My Lord Jesus was bound with a chain harder than this one. For my sake, why then should I be ashamed of this rusty one? And he died within the hour. Notice it was Huss's meditation upon the sufferings of Christ that said, Jesus' chain was harder than mine. It was a nails to the cross. Mine is just a chain where I stand here. Jesus endured that. I can endure this. That's how it works. In the 16th century, the inquisitors were trying to root out the Bible from the people. In a small town, the inspectors were inspecting a home. They found a Bible in the mayor's home. And everyone in the home claimed to know nothing about it except a young servant girl. We don't even know her last name. Her name is Runkin. She said, I'm reading it. And the mayor, knowing that that was going to bring about her death, tried to cover it up. She said, no, 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 it's just her Bible, but she's really not reading it. And she stood up she said, no, no, it's mine. I am reading it and it's more precious to me than anything. She died. Suffocation. There's a gap in the wall. They put her in there, tied her in there, and the mason bricked up the opening to the hole of the wall. Her bones were collected a few years later. As one of the officials came in the last moment before they covered the wall with the, with the bricks, tried to get her to recant, he says, You're so young. So pretty to die. And she said this. She said, um, My Savior died for me. I will also die for Him. See what's happening there? She saw and considered the sufferings of Christ and that strengthened her to follow mimic in the same way. Gave her strength so she wasn't weary and she didn't lose heart in that hole as the last brick was placed until she suffocated to death.
Paul said it like this, He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. The sufferings of Jesus, the hand of sinners, is our strength to help us, to prevent us from losing heart and growing weary. So consider His sufferings and don't lose heart, church family. We follow a suffering Savior. And His path to the cross is our path as well. That was His path to glory. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, that's when and how God highly exalted Him. And with us as well, that's how God exalts us to walk the Calvary road, the walk of the cross as well. Well, let's look at my second point. Verses 4 through 13. I've chosen to take all these together because I, I think they all come back here and they, they tie and they help us so as we don't grow weary and lose heart. First, we need to consider his sufferings, and second, we need to consider your sufferings. We need to consider our sufferings. Because that's what this is. In verses 4 through 13, he's, he's kind of taking uh, the sufferings that we're experiencing them and then interpreting them and, and having us look at them carefully. The reason why we might not grow weary and lose heart is because the troubles we experience in following Christ are interpreted for us here. They're discouraging, seeking to pull us away. But if we think rightly about our own sufferings, we will endure. Verse 4, look at what it says. It says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. In other words, I'll put it easy. It could be worse. <laughs> That's what we're saying. It could be worse. You haven't resisted the point of shedding blood. You haven't died yet, is what he's saying. When you think about the sufferings of the Messiah, His sufferings were unto death, and your suffering hasn't gone that far, has it? Well, okay, I wouldn't do this. Yeah, can you do that? Yeah, I haven't died yet. It could be worse. The argument's a little bit like what takes place across many dinner tables in America. Children are sitting there, food on the plate, not yet quite eaten. And what, what do mothers, what is this Mother's Day? What, what do mothers often say? Remember the, remember the starving children in Africa. They long for something on their plate. Right? In other words, what are you saying? You're saying it could be worse. It's what you got. And it's the same argument here. It could be worse. Rather than being thankful that we're not a poor child in Africa, we should be thankful that we haven't suffered unto death yet like Jesus did. And I don't care what your sufferings are like. You haven't gone that far yet. And you can be thankful for your sufferings. So consider your sufferings and think about them that, that they're not as bad as they could be. Now, in some ways, this is a, a soft rebuke because this is what Christ calls us to when we, we, call, we come to follow Him. He calls us to die. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me daily. In other words, you take up your execution and you follow Christ daily. So whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. We follow Messiah, we sign on for suffering. It's part of the agreement. And it's sad to say across many Churches, particularly in America, the agreement for signing on to believing in Christ has nothing to do with death and following Him forever. It has to do with, oh, believe Jesus and things will go really well for you. Well, 
that wouldn't work to the church this was written to because they believed in Christ and things were going, quite frankly, pretty bad for them. Property confiscated, being made a public spectacle. Things were not going better. So just remember what you signed up for. You didn't just sign up for persecutions. You signed up for death. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And just feel fortunate that you haven't died yet. That's what he's saying. Well, consider your sufferings. It could be worse, but consider your sufferings. Verse 5 and following. It could be discipline. It could be discipline. That's where he starts going in verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Again, it's a minor rebuke to those original hearers. You remember when Jesus walked among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they'd bring up some kind of question and Jesus would say something like, well, well have you not read? Do you remember when you said that? Have you not read what Moses said? Or have you not said? Have you not read? Now, that's, that's a rebuke from Jesus because yes, they had read that. Yes, they knew that. I mean, after all, they were the teachers of Israel. But in asking them, have you not read... Jesus is basically saying, you've totally missed the understanding of this passage. I know you know this verse, but you've like skipped over it and have forgotten the meaning. Let me tell you what the true meaning is. That's what he's saying. And the statement here has a similar punch. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you. You've forgotten it. If you had remembered it, then you wouldn't be in such a tizzy over the, the sufferings that you're experiencing. Back in chapter 5, the writer talked about how the readers had become dull of hearing, needing milk and not solid food. And here's the case here. They'd forgotten the simple exhortation of Scripture, which every Jew knew from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Well-known verses to them. Proverbs, a child-rearing manual, would have definitely gone through that, particularly the first nine chapters. Very simple, very straightforward, very penetrating. Every Jew knew it. When God disciplines you, don't grow faint, don't grow weary, because there's a purpose behind it. God is refining us. He is making us more like Him. That's the purpose right here. Right? You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by Him. This is the very thing that He's trying to combat against. You can see even the verbal links there. Don't grow weary and lose heart. And, and don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't, don't faint... When things get hard. Because, verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. When suffering comes upon us, and we complain and lose heart, we've missed the whole reason for the hardship. Uh, I think about uh, Job's wife. When Job was afflicted, remember how Job was afflicted, right? He lost all of his wealth all of his family in a day, except his wife. Another day came along, we don't know how long later, a few days later, a month later, a week later, whatever. He lost his health. And there he is, this, this pitiful body of a man covered with sores, wealth gone, family gone, and his wife stands up and says, curse God and die. Just curse God and die. What happened to her? She lost heart. 
she grew faint. She grew weary. Maybe she had a perspective that, hey, look at Job's a follower of God. You follow God and everything goes well for you. Well, there are blessings of following God, but, but many times there are curses that come. And this was that time. As God used Job as an object lesson for Satan. Job said, you speak as one of those foolish women speak. Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? In other words, adversity is coming upon our life that's from the hand of God and shall we not escape it? Unless you think Job's theology was bad, it says in the very next verse, Job did not sin with his lips. It's his theology. It says that God has brought us good and God has brought us bad. Still we're going to praise God. It's the reality of the way God works in our life. He will bring hardships in our life to refine us and conform us to the image of Jesus. Right? It's very true that people, when things are going well, they, they can drift and drift to their things. But when things are going bad, they have nowhere else to turn except to the Lord. And when things are going bad, oftentimes that's the time of great spiritual growth in people's life. So God is giving us grace when He brings adversity upon our life so that we have nowhere else to turn but to God, and then we grow in our faith and our trust in Him. It's by design that God does as He disciplines us. See, when trials come, as James 1 says, they produce endurance. And when endurance is had, it's full effect, and we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But we never achieve the perfection apart from the trials in the first place. Jesus said it this way, every branch that bears fruit... Remember what He says? He prunes it. He lops off some branches so that it might bear more fruit. Once you see there that it's not the result of sin that trials come. Job, blameless in all his ways. Jesus, the pruning takes place not on the bad and sickly tree. It takes place on the good tree. The pruning comes. It's a disciplining hand of the Lord. In the end, it matters not Really, in one regard, whether you're walking rightly with the Lord, whether you're walking sinfully, God, God will bring suffering in our lives for our refinement. It's being described, the suffering here in the verses for us. Here's the, the refining process that's taking place. So when suffering comes, don't lose heart, church family. It, God may be refining your life. And when suffering comes, be encouraged because God is working in your life. The difficulties and trials that come, when you see it right, and when you see, wow, this has come, this is God's means by which He's going to refine us. Think of the hardships in your life right now. Think of them. I know looking across you all, I know some of the hardships you have. Think of them. You know, God is sovereign over that and is bringing those circumstances so as to refine you. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. There's that word again, right? Endurance. It's the theme that holds chapter 10, 11, and 12 together. It's endure. You've you got to continue on. You have to press on, as Hebrews says it. It's the reason why he's writing. To press on, to endure. He says, for discipline that you endure, verse 7, God deals with you as with sons. There's the great reality of us as believers in Jesus Christ. We trust Him and we become sons of God. Behold what manner of love 
is this, that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3, one. It's amazing. But that comes with some, I don't say strings, I want to say some implications. If we are the children of God, God's going to deal with us as His Father. And how does the Father deal with His Son? What well, says right there? What son is there whom His Father does not discipline? Rhetorical question. In our day and age, maybe it's not a rhetorical question because discipline has gone out the door in our society today. But, it should be a rhetorical question. Does not every father discipline his son? Of course he does. Why? Because he loves his son. Those who say, oh no, I just love my child too much, I can't spank them. It goes against the Scripture because it says in Proverbs 13.24, He withholds his rod, hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And the idea there is discipline should be tied with love must be tied with love because that's the whole purpose of it. Every time I've disciplined my children, the, um, the discipline's come strong, but the love has come stronger. I'm sure of that. I sit them on my lap, having disciplined them, I say, I love you. That's why I've disciplined you. If I didn't love you, I'd let you do your own thing, but I love you too much. That's why I've disciplined you. And I want for you to have wisdom. I want for you to know the pains of foolishness. And we hug and kiss and pray every time. With God's the same way. We're His children. And as such, He disciplines us because He loves us. And that is, that is so crucial. I mean, that, that's, He's just exposing these verses right here, right? Verse 6, right? Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives, right? The, the ones who are loved get the discipline. And, and the one who receives get the scourgings. And why is it that's coming? It's coming for refinement to conform us to the image of his son. In fact, that's where verse 8 goes. But if you're without discipline, if everything's going well for you, you're escaping the disciplining hand of God, you say, woohoo! No, that's a time of danger for you. Because if you're escaping the disciplining hand of God, it's either showing a fact that God doesn't love you as a child, which isn't true, because God does love His children, or it shows that you're an illegitimate child. You're not a child of God at all. If you're engaged in sin and God is not pursuing you, maybe you're not a child of God. Because if He loves you, He will pursue you. That's what verse 8 says. If you're without discipline, of which all become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Because God disciplines all of His children. Parents, isn't there a difference between your child and someone else's child? Isn't there a difference of what you do with your children as opposed to what you do with other children's, other people's children? There are certain things that I will do with my, my children. I'll be much more active in my children's life. When I see my child disobeying, being disciplined, I will step in and act. When I see yours, I can't step in and act in the same way. So I see a child running through the hallways of the church building, which is dangerous, is why, kids, you're not supposed to run in the, the hallways here because we've had lots of collisions, particularly with the older, bigger folks around here, okay? So you need to help us. So you see one child running here 
And it's, it's one thing, you can kind of stop them and talk them, but if it's your child, you can kind of grab them, take them, and then whisper something in their ear that, that nobody else can hear except for them. And there have been many times where I've got right on the ear and I've whispered something in child's ears, and if you look at the child, the child's like... <laughs> and then walks away pretty well. But you know what? I can't whisper those things to other children. Because I'm not their father. And I'm not, I don't have that authority in their life. I can talk to them, I can reason them, but it's different. And that's the point of verse 8. Is it the corrective hand or voice of discipline comes upon legitimate children? And if it's not coming, you may be illegitimate. Maybe it's time to cry out to God for mercy. So listen, the very fact that you're facing suffering in your life isn't an indication that, hey, I should stray from Christ. Rather, it's an indication that God loves me and is bringing me back so I ought not to, to grow faint and lose heart. So consider your sufferings. It might be God's discipline. God may be bringing you back. So don't lose heart because He's working on you. Kind of puts a different shape upon the sufferings and trials that come, right? Well, in verse 9, then we see these parallels between heaven and earth. Furthermore, kind of going more upon this, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? That's the way life works, right? Parents, discipline, disciple their children, correct them. And those parents that have impact upon their children's lives to discipline and correct them are not alienated from their children in later days. Rather, they're respected because they see the love that comes. Children see it. Children know it. Children know that their parents genuinely have loved them. You show me a parent who's lovingly disciplined his or her child, I'll show you a parent who respects the child. You show me a parent who refuses to discipline his or her own child, I'll show you a parent who's not respected by a child. Now, there are exceptions, to be sure, but the exceptions prove the rule. Our earthly fathers disciplined us and we respected them, right? So it is with God. When God disciplines us, bringing suffering upon our lives, it ought not to alienate us from God, not, not to pull us away from God, rather it should draw us to God, to generate submission to the will of God. Right? That's what We should be subject to the Father of Spirits and live. Because verse 10 talks about how much better a parent God is than we are. They, that is the earthly parents, verse 10, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so we may share His holiness. Any parent knows the administration of discipline comes with doubts. I mean, should I really discipline at this moment? Shall I not? What sort of discipline? Just verbal, physical? How severe should it be? Will my child receive it well? Am I, am I really doing the right thing? I mean, all those things swirl in my mind. And yet, you know what? Don't swirl in God's minds because God has no doubts He's the perfect parent. He does it perfectly. And we can have confidence that anything and everything that He brings into our life is for good. Is that what verse 10 says? He disciplines us for our good. When God brings the adversity upon our life, it's for our good. 
So Tony Sinelli, several weeks ago, right? He causes all things to work together for good. God is working in the midst of all things in our life for the good, including the difficult things that He brings by way of discipline. And the end of that is to share in His holiness, right? There's the refinement there, the, the, the righteousness, the end of all discipline. All, all discipline is to direct us to ways of holiness. Proverbs 22.15 Foolishness bound up in the heart of the child but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Right? Foolishness in the child, you take the rod, you use the rod appropriately, lovingly, and the foolishness will leave. The rod and reproof are the means to give wisdom, but a child left to his own way brings shame to his mother. Oh, mothers, be discipliners to your children. If you don't want to be shamed in your later end, discipline your children. You see the sanctifying words of discipline. It removes foolishness. It gives wisdom so the child can walk in the fear of the Lord. And God, God brings discipline in our lives as well to remove the foolishness and to bring the wisdom so that we walk in the fear of the Lord and walk in holiness. So we learn what the pleasant way to live is. And we learn to avoid the wicked way because it hurts us in the end. God patiently disciplines us in those ways. Now, that's... All that's not to say that it's easy. Now, that's the point of verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Um, I just say how, how true that is. The administration of discipline comes with sorrow. It's a painful process. I tell you, whenever I have disciplined my children, it's been sorrowful. <laughs> for them more than for me, alright? Though it's painful for me as well. Tears have flowed. It has not been pleasant. But after the discipline, after the explanation, after the affirmations of love, after the prayers, after the hugs, after the kisses, after the promise of forgiveness, after telling them of the glories of Jesus, who can take away their sins, whereas I can only forgive their sins, there's been great joy and great happiness. And my children know that I love them. They become secure in my love for them. There's a desire for righteousness. They're very happy coming out of the bathroom of disobedience, of discipline. They're happy. Always. And that's what he's talking about here, right? Afterwards. It's sorrowful on the one hand, but when you've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So these are the things we think about our suffering. As you consider your suffering, you ought to con- consider and think strongly about and think deeply about the trials coming upon your life are to make you better, to help you, direct you in the path of the Lord. Peter said it well, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you. That's the call here, right? When you have a fiery ordeal in your life, when there's some something coming down, don't be like surprised, like, oh, why did this happen? Don't be like that, right? Think of it rightly. Say, oh, there's a reason. My loving Father is bringing this for a reason. It says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, and, and there it is, think about the sufferings of Jesus, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, 1 Peter 4.13, keep on rejoicing in our sufferings where to rejoice so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're evolved for the name of Christ, you're blessed. 
Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, right? So when sufferings of life come crashing down upon you, right? Don't lose heart, but understand the perspective of what sufferings are. God is working. He's working these things in our life for our good. Alright. I have a few minutes left. I'm going to close with two observations and then we'll be finished. First of all, notice the sovereignty of God in these verses. Notice the sovereign hand of God. Our comfort in the suffering comes because we know that God is fully in charge of them and in control of them. We know that He is bringing them into our lives, direct from His hand, direct with a purpose to bring us and guide us into holiness. If you lose the sovereignty of God over all the details of your life, you've lost all comfort in suffering. If you want comfort in suffering, believe totally in the sovereignty of God bringing all the suffering. Because if you don't, all you have is random acts of evil that God can't control. And that's awful. Some theologians try to go that way, but it's not going to give you comfort in your trials. All you have then is unfortunate circumstances of life, right? Oh man, oh, I just, whatever, I went the wrong way or I crossed the wrong way or I drove the wrong way or I made the wrong decision. Unfortunate circumstances of life. And they can start piling up and piling up and piling up and piling up on you. And then you're like, oh man, I've blown it. I'm done. And you'll grow faint and grow weary. But when you realize that, no, God's brought this, He's brought this, He's brought this, He's brought this for a better end, you can keep on pressing and keep on enduring because you know the purpose of the trial that's coming your way. The comfort comes when you know and when you're convinced that God is intentionally bringing evil in your life for good. God causes all things to work together for good, right? All things. And it gives you a reason to hope because God is at work in me. The discipline will come Exactly what's appropriate to my life. There's not going to be too much. There's not going to be too little. It's not going to be too early. It's not going to be too late. It's all going to be right on time. God is working in me and I can endure those kind of things where I believe and trust the sovereignty of God. That's just going to help you not lose heart the sufferings of life. If you say, no, I don't see the sovereignty of God, it is the whole premise of the discipline motif. Is the, the father is sovereign over the child in correction and so God is sovereign over us in His correction and guidance in our life. You've got to believe that. It's the path to joy in trials. Second observation. Um, my message this morning wasn't just for you all. Meaning, it's not as if I'm just giving you individual messages. Because some of you might be saying, huh, things are going pretty well for me. Guess I've kind of dodged that one. I guess I'm uh, okay. That's cool. I'll just stack that up. No, there's a responsibility of this message that each one of you have towards each one of you. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 12. Therefore, and now this is plural, right? Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He's not talking here about how all of us need to be physical therapists. He's not talking about how we all need to be in this business of, of strengthening hands. Right? 
of, of strengthening knees, of making straight paths for feet. He's not calling us all to be um, industrial engineers, making sure the sidewalks are all straight and smooth so that nobody trips. It's not what he's talking about. It's a, it's a picture here. It's metaphorical. It's a picture of how the body ought to care for one another. We all need to be spiritual therapists helping to heal one another. We all need to be spiritual engineers helping to seek make life easier for others. The call for us here is to be attentive to the weaknesses of others, particularly those who are going through trials who are weak and susceptible and close to growing weary and losing heart. And we, collectively, all of us, need to see someone on that path and do what we can to strengthen the hands that are weak. And to strengthen the knees that are feeble so they can continue to walk. And to bury, and to carry burdens, and to take them, and to carry them through the trial with them, so as to strengthen them, right? And so they can they can walk on a straight path and not stumble and fall. We need to come alongside them and help them smooth the path, whatever we can. Come and help, in whatever way we can. God's calling each of us to be attentive to the sufferings of those around us. We might help those who are weak. So when you see others who are losing heart, maybe haven't been to a church for a while, maybe involved in some sin. Maybe you've seen some other ways in which there are some, some things they've said, their activities or involvement, their engagement and other things. And you sense that in their lives? Give them up. Give them a call. Be concerned about them. Come to help them. Come to serve them. Do whatever you can. This is a corporate call. And you strengthen their hands and you strengthen their knees and you smooth the path for them and you direct them to do two things, right? You tell them, Consider His sufferings. Consider the sufferings of Jesus. The sufferings you're going through pales in insignificance to His. And His is the reason why we're suffering. So, and secondly, consider your sufferings. Think rightly about it. It could be worse. You haven't died yet. But secondly, it could be discipline. God's working in your life. Consider those things. Tell them how God uses sufferings. And encourage them in that way to help carry them through those trials, tribulations. Can we do that, Sabati? Let's consider him, his sufferings, consider your sufferings, and let's all be engaged to help remind all of us of those things all the time. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that we would learn from the sufferings of Jesus as we reflect often upon the cross. May it truly be our glory. Because Jesus crucified, the wrath of God upon Him is our joy because it means the grace of God comes to us. May we think much upon His sufferings. May it strengthen us, O God, not to fall. If we fall, may we get up like Heather Dornadin. And Father, may You teach us to believe rightly about our own trials, tribulations, and sufferings. May we see them from Your hand. And may we genuinely care about those who are suffering. Help us to be a body that nourishes itself, that helps one another. How we need that from You, and I pray that You would help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.